the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest is nothing short of Australian media royalty, probably best known for his television work on the Nine Network, but also a stellar radio career that has seen him involved in a number of different formats. Now, I could introduce Pete Smith. Maybe I'll leave him to do that. Remarkably cocky with every good reason to be And I'll say it though maybe I oughtn't I'm really most frightfully important All the teenagers though simply outrageous Believe every word that I say I get the new records as soon as they're in Then pick up the ones that create the most in And the kids go and buy everything that I spin I'm the big DJ The big DJ I'm a disc jockey and aren't people lucky To have such a fellow as me I could sell them the simplest arpeggio By plugging it over the radio Though my fans bore me They simply adore me And hang on each word that I say They sit there enraptured when I'm on the air Then write in and ask for a lock of my hair It's part of the cross I'm committed to bear I'm the big DJ The big DJ Well, the big DJ, Pete Smith Welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us It's a pleasure. Now, Peter, we could conceivably spend hours talking about what has been an exceptional television career, but here on Pilots, it's radio that we focus on, and especially those halcyon days of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about Pete Smith, the early years, initially growing up in St Kilda and being an only child. Well, I think radio was a great companion in those days growing up. Obviously, no TV. Radio was uh, very much an attraction in our home especially in the evening after dinner, after tea, as we called it then. My mother would be, as I recall, I can see her clearly now sitting on the couch knitting. My dad would be reading the uh, the Herald, as it was, the newspaper, and I'd be sitting on the floor looking up at the mantelpiece, watching the little faint light of the Strongberg-Carlson or it might have been a little Chrysler mantel radio, but whatever it was, we were watching radio. It was really 
theatre of the imagination. Now, Pete, sending their young boy to Wesley College in Melbourne, no doubt your parents were hoping that they might have a budding doctor, lawyer, or even a political leader at the end of the process. So how did your ambitions of wanting to pursue a radio career go down at home? Oh, not terribly well at all, really. And as an illustration of that, I can't recall the early days about wanting to get into radio and their uh, reaction. But certainly when I announced after being at the ABC and having a reasonable amount of uh, prominent work there, being the, the young bloke doing the hit parade and the teenage shows and all that sort of thing, and then on the TV counterpart as well, I can recall their reaction. You asked for a reaction. I can recall the, my mother's reaction when I said and I had no reason to leave the ABC. I wasn't uh, upset or dissatisfied, but I had an offer from Channel 9, from the then architect of the Channel 9 star system, Colin Bednell, who set the place up. Mr. Bednell, if, if you please, I had an offer which I didn't take up. Three weeks later, the phone rang again, and I thought this time when he rings, uh, this, that he's rung, if I refuse, that'll be the end of it. So I left the cosy confines of the ABC and went across to the uh, the harem scarum ride by the seat of your pants five nights a week live variety of in Melbourne tonight with Graham and all the team. But my mother's reaction when I said I'm leaving, you would have thought I was being sent to Pentridge. So it didn't go down at all well. She said, you've got a permanent position there. You know, being at the ABC was like being in a bank. You had a job for life. Well, of course, if I'd stayed there, I don't think I would have had a job for life because things changed and the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, is certainly not the place it was when I was there. So the family made the move to the suburb of Kew. Tell us about that makeshift radio station you had in the garage, your friendship with a kid from Xavier College called Philip, and a radio program called Broody's Hideout. Yes, Broody's Hideout was one of our little shows that we used to do in the garage, uh, an annex off the garage underneath the house in Kew. Philip... uh, lived in the mental home, actually, and that's not to put anything on him. His father was the psychiatrist superintendent of the Kew Cottages and the home, they had a beautiful home on the on the uh, asylum, as it was then, on the property. So it was only a few blocks for him to ride down and do his TAA hit parade. And as you say, as you remember, uh, his Broody's hideout, based on the name Brady, that was our, you know, our, our sort of, hint at uh, comedy, and uh, but we did that uh, week after week after week, uh, seriously uh, broadcasting to virtually nobody. We had a few kids wired up on speakers, little extension speakers on bell wire going across fences, and it actually worked. But whether anybody was really listening or not, I don't know. But we certainly took it very seriously indeed. As you mentioned there, Pete, at 16 years of age, you went off to the ABC. Um, What life lessons did you learn working for Auntie? Well, I think discipline is one of the things I learnt, Paul. Uh, In those days, prior to me joining in, uh, I think, late 50s, 56, 57, I can't think of the actual date, as a messenger boy, but, you know, to look up, they had a team of announcers, over 20 announcers full-time, and they were senior men. They were wonderful people to learn from because a kid from St Kilda, obviously, didn't have the, uh, the tonal qualities to make an announcer, even though he might have broken his neck to be one. But a foot in the door, which you can't do anymore today, sadly, is, uh, 
is being a messenger boy. And finally, over a number of years, over four years, I think, I nagged them to death to where I was able to get on as a junior announcer. But they were a wonderful team of people, and they'd be only names, perhaps, to your listeners on Pilots of the Airways. But there were people like uh, Ronald Coleman, the brother of the screen actor, uh, sorry, uh, Eric Coleman, the brother of the screen actor Ronald Coleman. You may recall Lost Horizons and uh, Tale of Two Cities and all that sort of thing. One boy went to America, the other, Eric, came out to Australia. So there were really wonderful senior announcers, including my mentor, Keith Glover, who had uh, served in an entertainment troupe uh, during the war up north uh, and uh, had a double act with a guy called Harry Hammond, who later became Happy Hammond. So these were wonderful people, you know, as far as personalities go, to actually learn from, even though there was no actual school of the air. Just being around in that environment was really wonderful. And I've got to tell you, as, as you know, corny or twee as it sounds, in the years before I joined the ABC, the evening shift on radio up there at Broadcast House on the corner of William and Lonsdale Street, now the county court, I shed a tear every time I go past, though it's a beautiful building, the old Broadcast House with its bomb-proof studio in the corner there, broadcasting to the world on Radio Australia. Um, I shed a tear because I've got so many happy memories. <laughs> So in 1964, it's the move into commercial radio and you become one of the good guys at 3AK. Now, studio-wise, what was the setup like there when you first arrived? Well, they'd only, in recent times, prior to me joining, when, uh, the, when the station, when Channel 9 purchased 3AK, uh, they, this, the original studios were down in Grey Streets and Kilda. And in fact, even going back before that, it had a wonderful history, 3AK, because the first license obtained for 3AK was obtained by a man called George Palmer at Yeren Street in, in Bourne, just off Whitehorse Road. No longer there, but I've seen photos of the transmitter master and that sort of thing. His dad, his father and the family must have had a lot of money because he was able to start an experimental radio station there, uh, which later, of course, became very popular as 3AK in its many manifestations. And uh, certainly down in Grey Streets and Kilda, uh, it was very popular there growing up. It was the all-night station, the only all-night station, because it was on the same frequency as, uh, I think, 2BS Bathurst. And the uh, frequencies uh, became, uh, you know, I can't talk to you technically about it, can't you tell? But uh, it meant that the station had to wait until Bathurst closed down at six or seven o'clock at night, and it became the all-night radio station. But the reason I mentioned George Palmer obtaining the first licence is that his son was Clive Palmer, or is Clive Palmer, the, uh, the very successful businessman. So it's got a rich history. But going there... In those days, you ask what were the facilities like? Well, it was a pretty reasonable setup, really. I mean, it was back in the days before cartridges, so anything that uh, had to be played outside of the recordings, records, uh, had to be played off tape in the control room by a technician. And I used to drive them mad because my specialty was voice tracks. And, you know, I'd be singing out to them with about a minute's notice, get me track 197. And of course, they got to spool in and try and find the thing. So they were really uh, rough around the edges days, as I say, but we seemed to get the job done. But uh, just prior to my joining in 1964, 
they had, when they obtained the license from the Mac Fishing Company, they had just a simple caravan, a very ordinary caravan down at Blair Gary you wouldn't look at twice. And that was their broadcasting studio that the likes of uh, Eric Pierce broadcast from there at one o'clock in the afternoon with his old program and Nostalgic 78s and so forth. And uh, everybody took a turn. It was true personality radio because, of course, the radio people, the people that went on the radio were already well established as personalities on Channel 9. So, Pete, how much did it add to the vibe of the radio station by being in the heart of Television City there at Channel 9? Did the radio station work off the energy that was being created by the television station? Very much so. It was very uh, productive, uh, post uh, or cross-productive, if you like, uh, to use a, a phrase. It, it, it really blended so well because, you know, so many radio stations, even today, are locked up in an area where the announcer or the the host can't really see outside there are many places still like that in operation pool which i think from a psychological point of view and a point of view of putting putting the whole thing across to the to the listeners is very counterproductive if you can't see outside and see what's going on it's just psychological you can say if you like but uh, that's the way it was at 3ak at the time and that's why on my saturday afternoon program as a good guy because when i joined it was the good guy era an American format, which uh, 2SM in Sydney um, pioneered with the likes of Mike Walsh, who was another schoolboy friend. Um, But uh, when I joined, it was really, uh, you know, a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, We didn't have any outside look. And so when I started the Saturday afternoon program, I called it Pete's Penthouse Party from the penthouse at Television City, which had a bit of a ring to it, even though we were locked in a studio, you know, which later became the current affair studios. <laughs> uh, don't worry, Peter, we'll get to Pete's penthouse party very shortly. Now, listen, there was no shortage of input from the television talent with segments such as Jack Little's magazine, Thought for the Day with Eric Pierce, etc. Was there an expectation that some of the television personalities would be involved in the radio station? Oh, very much so. I mean, everybody was happy to do that, you know, because it, it simply carried on the uh, the personality tradition. As I say, Channel 9 really went for the personality uh, approach, uh, thanks to Colin Bednall, and everybody was encouraged to do that extra little bit, whatever it was. Now, not everybody got on the air on 3AK, but many of them did in those early days, and I think it added to the whole. It, it had never been done before, never. Of course, some of the iconic names of 3AK were there at the time when you started with Bill Howie, who we only just lost recently, Lionel York, Malcolm Searle, and of course, Grantly D. They were all on deck and all very good at their craft, but all quite unique in the way they went about it. Yes, they were all different. And I mean, Grantly D had already become a pop star on EMI. Uh, He had Let the Little Girl Dance, which I think was a cover version of something from overseas. But that and other recordings, which escaped my memory, were very big hits for him. And of course, there's more cross-promotion for you. And Grantly was, uh, I think, used to do what was called, or what was later to be called, the drive show. First, there's Marlo Melbourne, 3AK. Time tick exactly seven and three quarter minutes before five o'clock. Don't forget the only number to ring in 3AK's chart check tonight. But uh, I admired him very much because he'd come in uh, to do preparation, and that preparation mainly involved um, typing on his, uh, you know, uh, Braille writer the live reads, the live commercials, which, of course... For us uh, other folk, we just picked up the script and read it. 
Now you had the Saturday afternoon shift with the top 100 hit selections, world hit survey, the good guy flashbacks, etc. So how free were you to choose the music you played and dictate the format of your shift? Oh, well, mostly, mostly it was a sort of a top 40 format. And so it included all the, most of the material you'd want to play. I mean, my favourite music had been British dance bands of the 30s and 40s. Now, there's no way knowing, Paul, that sort of stuff would go down on a, a disc jockey type good guy program. But that was fine. That didn't matter. There was a wide range of material that we could use. And, and they were very inventive. I mean, uh, they used to do broad, outside broadcasts at the drop of a hat. One memorable one on a Saturday afternoon was when the Rolling Stones were in town. And we took them, the management arranged with their management, for them to be taken out while I broadcast my show from Port Phillip Bay on a luxury cruiser. Now, I've got to be honest, they weren't entirely happy to be trapped out there doing the whole afternoon. I mean, drinks were provided and everything. But back in 1964, I've got to tell you, they'd only hit the big time, just hit the big time. And so they were basically doing what they they were told. But we were able to do that sort of inventive outside broadcast. Now, of course, at the time, 3AK had pretty stiff opposition from 3UZ, 3DB, and of course those most happy fellas down there at 3KZ. But while they're all in sports mode on a Saturday afternoon, you were the only one playing Top 40 music. So how do you think that helped the popularity of the program? Oh, well, absolutely it helped. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that everybody else, all the stations, as you pointed out, most of the stations were either doing racing or covering a particular football match, and we had it on our own. So how couldn't Pete Smith succeed? Hello, everybody. This is Max Bygraves on The Pete Smith Show. Hi, this is Sarah Vaughan with Pete Smith. Hi there. This is Normie Rowe. On The Pete Smith Show, this is Frank Ifield. Hi there. Well, this is Cliff Richard reminding you that you're listening to the top man on the popularity polls, Pete Smith. Hello, Peter. This is Ella Fitzgerald, and I want to thank you for having me in your program, and thanks so much. Hey, not a bad roll call of buddies there, Peter. Uh, Radio is so often theatre of the mind, and as we touched on before, the old Pete's penthouse party on a Saturday afternoon was basically the ultimate illusion. It was a rowdy studio packed with stars in a very festive mood, all popping in to say hello, as we heard before. Now, it sounded like a real hoot, but how much work went into creating the unique on-air atmosphere? Well, a lot of, uh, as I say, I, I went in for a lot of voice tracks so that when visiting stars came out, I badgered them for some personalised voice tracks and, uh, gee, uh, the names have gone into memory, but, you know, everybody from the Rolling Stones to Sammy Davis Jr. to you name it, I had them on tape to introduce their own record. And uh, so that took a lot of production, but as I say, mainly from the poor technician, who I think they cursed me, they didn't want to be on the Saturday afternoon shift, and we had a background uh, when cartridges did come in, we were able to have a loop tape, just an endless loop tape with the party noise just hovering around in the background, and I can remember once uh, the general manager of the station, Gary Day, ringing up and blasting me one Saturday afternoon because I'd forgotten to take the background party noise off the news. (laughs) I never did that a second time. (laughs) Now, you did have an incredible number of personalised messages, as we heard before, from from the biggest stars. Did you just corner everybody that walked through the Channel 9 studios and uh, thrust a microphone in front of their face? Yes, that was a great help. Uh, As I say, you know, you talk about cross-promotional. I think the... 
I was also a booth announcer, Paul, on the station, so I was really only a part-time radio man by the time I went to 3AK, just the Saturday afternoon, but I was included as one of the good guys, which was a terrific era. But, yes, uh, everything that went over on Channel 9 uh, in the television studios uh, had the uh, had the chance to be morphed across to the radio, not always, but uh, I can remember one typical Sunday afternoon, there were two... Uh, big attractions in town, and because of the lack of facilities, I mean, in those days, what we took for granted to do, what we take for granted today, they only had four or five cameras and they had to make the most of it. Videotape had just started to come in, and on this particular Sunday afternoon that I was on duty, there were two specials, one recorded in the afternoon, one recorded in the evening. The afternoon one was the Rolling Stones in the famously remembered Studio Nine, and then in the evening after the tea break, Tom Jones, all done at Channel 9 in Richmond, which we affectionately uh, remember as the fun factory. And it certainly was. Yes, indeed. Now, the station went from modern Melbourne through the good guys and friendly 3AK, but by the time the Wrinkleys arrived, the party had ended and you'd moved on. Mutual decision or did you just have other priorities? Oh, no. Well, I mean, my main work was at Channel 9. There were, When I went there, there were nine full-time booth announcers. Nine. The Bert Newtons, the Hal Todds, the Jeff Corks, Philip Brady, Paul Jennings, myself. Everybody took a turn in the booth, and no matter what their status on camera was, because the booth was very much the shop window of the television station. But as time went on, many of the live commercial reads we used to read in the booth, just like on radio, they were replaced by videotape commercials. And slowly, the live booth element started to go out. And finally, in the end, over a number of years, I was the last one left <laughs> in the booth. Now, today, of course, it all comes from Sydney, where the true network networking uh, is operational. But I had plenty to do at Channel 9, so leaving the... Uh, leaving the environment in the late 60s of the, uh, the disc jockey era didn't worry me at all. And in, in fact, I enjoyed the beautiful music that 3AK put out. The we're of course talking to Pete Smith on Pilots of the Airways and Pete, the next stop on the radio journey was of course the Greater 3UZ at an interesting time when they'd just come out of their 60s top 40 domination and were more personality focused. How did that gig come about and what did they have you doing? Well, I, through my friendship with Bert, we used to get on terrifically well, we still do, but because of my friendship with Bert, I guess he had me come in there and do regular spots. Philip Brady, who had been very much a part of the Channel 9 scene, was the producer of his 3UZ program. They'd moved from Burke Street, long gone, up to uh, the top of Elizabeth Street, as I recall, and uh, Bert did Morning Women's and did it ex very successfully, as you can imagine. It was a top rater up there before the days of, uh, you know, the heavy Neil Mitchell-type uh, work that's done today. It, it was much more relaxed in Bert's hands, of course. He could still handle the, uh, the serious interviews as well as uh, at the sw switch of a commercial break, uh, going to something more light-hearted. Now, of course, you've had the chance to see Bert close up, both on television and radio. Did he have to work hard at being so good, or, or do you think it just came naturally to him? 
No, it was just absolutely natural. And of course, his brilliance, people very often ask, you know, what is Bert Newton's success? And of course, he had a great deal of success on his own on television. But I do feel that uh, the success of programs like in Melbourne tonight with Graham and later in later years, the Don Lane Show, the reason those programs very much were a success was the fact that Bert was able to make the host feel special, not threatened, but completely the opposite, feel very special. And I uh, experienced that at first hand. So I'm sure I really believe that to be true. Now, the Channel 9 stable of stars dominated the UZ airways for quite a time with yourself, Don Lane, Bert, Tony Barber and, of course, Ugly Dave Grey all playing key roles. Was the transition from screen to radio that easy or are we talking about exceptionally talented people? I think you're talking about people who had a personality in the first case because I don't think, I suppose really back in those days, if you're really truthful about it, uh, there were over 200 people working on In Melbourne Tonight on television and I suppose really we were able to learn on camera and the unique part about that learning on camera was the fact that it didn't look so bad because the audience was learning too. They were, they were learning to watch this flickering image on the black and white set sitting up there on the 17-incher or 21-incher, if they were wealthy, uh, in the corner of the room. And I think it was a learning curve for everybody. Let's face it, in those days, people were staring at test patterns. Such was the wonder of a picture coming through the air and I think that it was a great time. I mean, timing is everything, isn't it, Paul? And uh, timing was very much in my favour, being a supporting player down through all those eras, really, all the eras. OK, just focusing on that supporting theme, you have been described as the ultimate utility player, someone who can adapt to any situation and make it work. Now, in 1995, you're thrust back into radio, this time on Fox FM, in the unlikely role as a support for a couple of up-and-coming comedians in Tony Martin and Mick Malloy. How did that unlikely association come about? Well, I think it happened because, like Tony and Mick, the working dog people who you know so well from The Late Show on Channel 2, many of them grew up watching Graham Kennedy and uh, myself was included, of course, in, in the bits and pieces we did, the comedy sketches, the live commercials. Uh, I think the live commercial record for a live commercial, a uh, 60-second commercial, uh, the longest uh, on record was uh, 14 and a half minutes when Graham Kennedy was doing a Pell Dog food ad and Rover the Wonder Dog, his wonderful Labrador retriever, wouldn't eat the Pell Dog food. Every night, night after night, year after year, the dog would leap in and gobble up all the food. But on this particular day, some wag, and we know who it was, somebody got into the prop cage where the dog was confined with no food the whole afternoon and gave the dog two cans of Pell dog food. So when Graham said, come on, Rover, as he'd had done, uh, I mean, literally hundreds of times, the dog just wandered in lethargically, turned its nose up at the bowl of dog food and just would not eat the food. And Graham, in the end, over 14, or might even be longer, but certainly 14 to 15 minutes, was down on his hands and knees begging the dog, much to the hilarity of the audience, both at home and in the studio. Finally, uh, Graham wasn't going to give up, but finally the dog won 
Rover went over and lifted his leg on the camera pedestal and we had to go out with the band to a commercial break. Hey, funnily enough, Peter, I remember that one quite well. Hey, listen, recently we spoke with the producer of Martin and Malloy, Peter Grace, and he was absolutely glowing in the praise of the pair. How did you find them to work with? Absolutely wonderful. Can you imagine younger people wanting to work with an old bloke? Gosh, I'm old now. I was old then. But as I said to you, and I think I interrupted myself in that little story about the pal dog food, they had grown up the likes of Tony and Mick They'd, been, they'd grown up watching, probably sent to bed, and watching through a, a, a slit in the door the antics of Graham and company on in Melbourne tonight and that sort of show, and they grew up loving that particular uh, atmosphere. And so they carried it on into their professional careers. And so it's the chance to get uh, Pete Smith, uh, which I didn't think was any big deal, they thought was very special. Well, it turned out to be very special for me, the association too. Same with Sean McAuliffe, who, of course, Sean basically is a genius. You know, he's just an incredible writer, a creator of situations. Uh, he had a 13-week series on Channel 9, which uh, now, of course, is in its right place, I guess, on Channel 2. I say that only because it was a terrific program, but maybe, I don't know, above the heads of you know, the variety audience, but uh, he did a terrific job on that. And that's where I was introduced to Sean. And Sean had looked through all the old programs prior to starting his show at Channel 9. He'd looked through all some of the old tapes and kinescopes and uh, thought, gee, there's one interlinking thread that he told me when he first met me. He said, and that's you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're there, you know, doing your bits and pieces in all those shows. So he said, we'd love you to be the announcer. So there, I went back in and uh, did it all again for Sean. So with Martin and Malloy, how conscious were you at the time that you were entrusting them with a media credibility and a very positive public image that you'd built up over 40 years? Well, I'm afraid you've only got to listen to some of the double CDs that Tony and Mick put out. Eat Your Peas, The Brown Album, uh, Poop Shoot, you get the idea from those titles that uh, it was anything but, you know, art gallery stuff, but very funny indeed. And uh, look, I was just carried along on the wit of those guys. Uh, Tony, with his wonderful uh, ability to, you know, create spoof situations, an enormous amount of... I mean, Tony, talk about preparation. Tony would work into the early hours of every morning to create that show. It just didn't happen. They just didn't pick up the paper and try and make a gag out of it. It was so well prepared, and yet they made it sound as though it was coming off the top of their head. And, and probably a lot of it was. But the cream on the cake was the preparation. There was so much to admire in the way they went about their business. And still, I'm still in contact with Tony. There still is with his wonderful podcasts. I mean, Sizzle Town and, uh, you know, they're legendary with his followers. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Pete Smith here in the Martin Malloy Brown Thunder, out on the streets, getting in touch with the kids of today for another edition of Pete Smith's Street Beat. OK, I'm stepping out of the van now and approaching a typical young person. Uh, excuse me, dude, what's happening? Chilling? Hanging loose? Having a bogus time, bro? Hey, take a chill pill. I'm not with the pigs or nothing. Ladies, settle. It's me, Pete Smith. Someone get the police! 
Whoa, heavy. I'm out of here. I guess some of the squares just don't have that rapport with today's youth the way I do. Yeah, I think that one probably deserves a mic more mmm at the end. Now, was there ever a project or segment idea that they put to you and you had to say no to? Uh, well, look, there might have been a couple of instances where they asked me to say uh, things that uh, I wasn't too happy about. Most of the time I went along with it. I don't know how I got away with it, mind you, but I did. I was uh, under their umbrella, I guess, and that saved the day. But occasionally there'd be something which was a bit, uh, you know, over the top uh, and uh, a bit uh, bit of groundbreaking, you might say. And today on the radio, I think they do what they like. They say what they like now. I think with the likes of Kyle Sunderland and people like that, I don't think he, I'm not sure whether he's into Melbourne, but it's not on my top list. But, uh, you know, I guess it's got an audience. It certainly has a big audience because they do so well. But to back in those days, oh, let me just say that anything Tony and Mick did that was a bit close to the edge, I would call, nicely call, groundbreaking. So, Pete, in terms of your radio work over the years, where does your time with Martin and Malloy rank? Uh, right up the top. I mean, I love doing... Look, you, once you do radio, you can't... doesn't matter what else you pursue. You can take the guy out of radio, but not the radio out of the game. You know, it's just uh, something that's in your blood. And uh, I hope to remain... I mean, doing this uh, Pilots of the Airwaves with you, Paul, uh, and knowing your sort of interest in the whole business and involvement is a joy because, you know, I can tell from your questions, you, it's secondhand knowledge to you. It may not be to your listeners. And I hope it's coming across as interesting, but you, you know, you know, the feeling, you know what I'm talking about, just a, the, the business of being in a, a radio studio. I mean, the first records I played were not quite with steel needles, but they will might've been. And, you can't take the thrill away from, uh, I can remember when LPs came in. Now you say, what's an LP to a young person today? Of course, they don't know what that is. But when microgroove recordings first came in, and some of the first ones were produced in Northcote, in High Street Northcote by Cyril Stevens on Spotlight, uh, that was an amazing time, a revolution but when you were playing a, a program of records, it might be lunching and listening on 3AR as it was then, uh, you'd have a type sheet and you'd play the records yourself, of course. But when microgrooves came in, in a particular program, there might be one microgroove track that would be typed in red. You would not be allowed to touch the record. You never saw the recording, the album. It was taken by an effects officer, that is one of the team who played effects, sound effects into the plays, the radio plays, all that sort of thing. They would be booked to go down into the old Radio Australia bomb-proof studio on the corner of William and Lonsdale, listen in, go to the record library, have the record signed out to them, the album, plus the pickup stylus head. We weren't entrusted with that. Only L78s for us. And so when we got down to that red-labelled track, we'd introduce it and it would be played remotely from another studio. After it was played, we'd back announce it and go on to our usual 78s. And I can remember the thrill. You can imagine, can't you, now, growing up with the likes of those wonderful BBC comedy shows like Take It From Here with Jimmy Edwards and all those wonderful people, Joy Nichols, uh, you know, wonderful times. Um, 
Dick Bentley, who was an Australia expat who made the big time over there long before stars from Australia went over there. But you can imagine the thrill of actually getting on the air after listening to those programs as a kid and actually playing the 16-inch transcription disc, two sides to make up the half hour. And then, of course, when The Goon Show came in, what a that was another revolution in entertainment, if you like. The Goon Show, it was on 16-inch transcription discs. And when the LPs came in, the BBC started distributing them on 10-inch LPs. And what a joy that was. You just put it on and forget it for half an hour. Wonderful. So all those sort of things, those thrills, go to make up my makeup, if you like, of being in radio. I was lucky enough to be there. I didn't, um, I wasn't there in the era of the evening shift wearing dinner suits, because they did. They wore dinner suits on the evening shift. It was very much along the lines of the BBC. And your first question you asked about discipline. Well, the discipline was there, but also the creativity, if you like. Largely unseen by any audience, except maybe an occasional studio tour by a charity group or Boy Scouts, but uh, they wore tuxedos on the evening shift. Marvellous. Now, Pete, to be a true multimedia personality, you need to be involved in television, radio, and, of course, print. Now, we can tick off the first two, but what involvement have you had in print? Well, actually, it was, um, if I might just say to you, um, through these stations is before the Channel 9 days, um, Ron Tudor, who was uh, the creative A&R manager at W&G Records, who produced an enormous number of hits for people like Ernie Sigley with Love is a Golden Ring, all that sort of thing, Heather Horwood, Gaynor Bunning, Frankie Davidson, you name it. They all were big stars in their own right in the recording sphere. But Ron... Uh, once his work got so busy for him, he was the Australian representative for the American Cashbox magazine. That's how I started to get into print because he very kindly, through our friendship, handed over the representation to me. And so for many years, I carried on the job of uh, Australian representative for Cashbox from the Australian point of view and had a column each week in that American magazine. It was the rec recording industry's equivalent of Billboard, which was the showbiz magazine, so to speak, as I recall. So that was my introduction into print. But then through my association with the ABC, they, uh, they have magazines now, of course, with Gardening Australia and so forth. But they also had a uh, opposing magazine uh, to TV Week. It was called TV Times. And I was the, the man for the, uh, you know, the young people. I had a page in that for quite a few years. Okay, Pete, time to get a little bit personal here. Now, these days, young people rely on sites such as Tinder and other online dating services to meet their partners, but very few try ballroom dancing lessons, which I think you'll agree is a shame because there have been some great success stories come from a session of the Evening Three Step and the Foxtrot. Any personal experiences there you want to share with us? A very personal experience. I went to the uh, Hans Meyer School of Dancing in Lisson Grove, Hawthorne, and that's where I met my wife, who was only 15 and a half at the time. I was already a junior announcer on the air, and I think her parents must have been horrified that this, you know, 18-year-old man was uh, showing uh, interest in their daughter. So I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but it certainly was... Uh, 
matchmaking of the finest order there at that dancing school. We were awarded the wooden spoon for being the worst dancers. But uh, at 78, oh, sorry, 78, 58 years of marriage, we're still going strong. Now, Peter Wiseman, one time when describing ballroom dancing, said, uh, hey, it's, it's a good excuse to touch a girl. Know the quote? Know the guy? Yes, and that's why it was so popular back in those days. I mean, every village in England had a, a, their own ballroom dancing place. It was the same with the Palais de Dance in Melbourne. Leggett's Palladium uh, here in Melbourne was very famous because in those days, that wonderful ballroom dancing day, you actually got to hold a girl in your arms legitimately. These days, it's all this boogaloo business or whatever you want to call it, you know, jumping up and down and facing each other and never touching. But in those days, that was the only way we could get to uh, uh, square one. Well, whatever you want to call it anyway. Square one for me, Paul. Yeah, square one, base one, all those well-used terms. Might need to uh, cross-reference that with Jackie at some stage. Anyway, Peter, charity work is extensive and you are a patron of the GTV Foundation. What can you tell us about the work of the Foundation? Well, the Foundation was brought in to look after staff, uh, uh, people on the staff who uh, may have, uh, you know, come across bad times and stuff like that. It was a lovely gesture on the part of the company because in those days, really, the company was there. Most companies, they weren't involved in that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they were just there to, to, you know, produce a profit for the shareholders. But uh, the, uh, the Ian Audsley, who was in charge of Channel 9 at that time, still working in the business, um, was charged with creating this uh, this particular foundation and uh, me being the uh, older person there, God knows how I'm perceived now, but uh, I was charged with uh, looking after it and I've sort of kept the community spirit going after all these years uh, because I do a lot of talks now, get out into the community, which the station's very happy about, of course, because it gets me into areas where otherwise I wouldn't be able to, uh, to um, you know, to get to uh, Rotary, Probus, all very popular. Of course, all stopped down by the pandemic, but now just showing, showing, thankfully, showing signs of life again. And then, of course, you get a call from a Paul Walsh wanting you to be a guest on on uh, Pilots of the Airwaves with the likes of, I mean, some wonderful people. You mentioned Gary, Gary Mack and John Vertigan. I won't keep going, but, uh, you know, those people uh, are just uh, right up the top of the, uh, the broadcasting tree for me. And luckily, I'm able to be still in touch with them, which is a great, great joy. Finally, Peter, you mentioned earlier about shedding a tear when you drive past the old ABC building. How do you go driving down the iconic Bendigo Street in Richmond these days? Same thing. Same thing. The heritage facade of the original building is still there. But the rest of it, of course, Studio 9 and all that is long gone. It's all, uh, you know, apartment buildings and that now. But they did maintain the heritage uh, front wall with its foundation stone. And if I might just digress for a moment, if I'm taking up too much time, that foundation stone is still there inside the grilled wall, uh, the, the fence. It can be seen, although it's split by two apartment fences now. But that foundation stone laid in about... 1908-1909, somewhere around about that, um, it, it has a lot of significance for me working there and, and for a lot of us because it's not generally known that when um, 
uh, Hugo Wertheim, the young man, was charged to come out from Germany by his father to set up uh, a piano factory. Uh, his other brother was sent to America to open the sewing machine factory to create it. So the young fellow came, I'm saying young fellow, in his 20s came out, or only in his 20s, came out charged with looking for a suitable site and had a look around Melbourne, then got on a train to go to look at some suggested Sydney sites. And on the train to Sydney, he met a young MP who uh, said to him that he really hoped he'd go back to Melbourne because there was an ideal site and it was only not even, you know, maybe just at the barest two and a half, three miles from the city centre in Richmond. Um, and so, um, you know, he convinced Hugo Wertheim to go back there and have a look after he looked around Sydney. Now, that local MP, in the years that uh, they bought the land and then had to, you know, make the plans for the building, in those years, that man had become, MP had become Prime Minister. And Hugo Wertheim called on that MP to actually lay the foundation stone, which is there, laid by Alfred Deacon. So there's a fair bit of history there. And then, and I don't seem to see this ever reported in the paper, it may have been at some time, but another great joy is that when we were doing and being involved in the charity side of things with that foundation, we were raising some money for uh, Beyond Blue. And at that time, Jeff Kennett was heading it up and we had a, a lunchtime barbecue for the staff in the courtyard at Channel 9. And uh, to get the thing going, we, uh, we organised for Jeff to come into the boardroom. And so I great, greeted him at the front door, took him into the boardroom for a few minutes before he made his appearance and addressed the staff just outside the uh, double bay windows. And there was this very rough-hewn long table against the wall that had been there forever in the boardroom. And as soon as Jeff walked in, he said, he took his up, put his eyes, and he said, hey, that's my table. What do you mean, Jeff? I said, it's been here since the year dot, since they, they got the license for the station. He said, no, that's my table. I said, what do you mean? He said, that's my grandfather's table. And when we left Channel 9 in Richmond, we gave him the table because his grandfather, great-grandfather, was Hugo Wertheim. True story. So you ask about driving past that place now. Yeah, the tear in the eye is shed for that place and all it meant to me and to so many wonderful people. I mean, how many people went through that place night after night after night and took away with them happy memories of what we affectionately called Television City? Let the good times roll. Get it in your soul. Pilots of the Airwaves, of course, with Pete Smith and a quick-fire dozen or so almost standard questions. First one being, Pete, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Well, it reminded me a bit of where were you when, uh, you know, Kennedy was assassinated. Terrible time. I think it was back in in almost Christmas time, 2080. Uh, we were preparing a pre-Christmas show, uh, Carols by Candlelight, when that news came through. It stopped us down, I can tell you really stunned everybody. The most memorable concert that you've seen? Well, it would have to be one that I really didn't hear the performance because of all the screaming, and that was the Beatles at Festival Hall 
Ken Brodziak had uh, booked this unknown group. He'd been given uh, a list of uh, names of up-and-coming groups, and most of them did very well, but certainly not near, no, nowhere near as well as the Beatles. And that was uh, oh, well over 12 months beforehand, and he got them for a song. And they had to come out and, uh, you know, fulfil the engagement. But the Beatles, well, you know where they were greeted like. They were big time by the time they arrived in Melbourne. And the Festival Hall concerts, of course, were just a sellout. But uh, unfortunately, we didn't hear the music very well because of the screaming fans. Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? Well, not that long ago, really, although time passes so fast, doesn't it? I think Glenn Campbell was booked to come down, I think, with Kenny Rogers to the Palais. And unfortunately, due to the onset of dementia, uh, that show never happened. So we were very disappointed to have to return our tickets on that one. Pete, the word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. Well, I don't seem to have much trouble now, but I think hyperbole was one, H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E, you know, commonly called hyperbole, but I think it was hyperbole. Luckily, it didn't come up very often. bit loath to ask this one because I don't think there might be one, but was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Yes, very much so. When I was at the ABC as a junior announcer, I was put on the classical station and... uh, I didn't realise the mic was on and what's the main, you never never treat a microphone as though it's on. I uh, mentioned an abbreviated form of the word fertiliser and I don't mean manure. And uh, SHI2T didn't go over very well on the classical music, music station, but amazingly, no one rang up and complained. Frank Sinatra or Sammy Davis Jr.? Well, I have to say... I have to say Sammy Davis because it's going too far to say we became great mates, but he was a lovely guy and so generous to me on the first time he came out, which I think was early 60s. He came out again several times. I think remember the one night he went to the Don Lane show after his performance and just wouldn't leave. And I think that show went until close to midnight because Sammy was having such a wonderful time with Don and Bert and the crew. And I think that, uh, I don't know whether the videotape exists. I guess it does, but it's legendary. Uh, he just had a wonderful time. But I met him first when he first came out and he was very, very generous to me. Very generous with his time, doing the voice tracks. Very, I've got some wonderful photos with him uh, that I'll just never forget his kindness. Terrific. Very generous performer too. And I might say, you say, what was the most memorable performance? Well, the Beatles are up there. But to see Sammy Davis in the prime of his performing career doing, he was a multi-instrumentalist, apart from his singing, uh, a multi-instrumentalist, uh, even did uh, whip cracking and uh, something with a revolver, sharp shooting, all in the one show. Can you imagine it? It was extraordinary, absolutely. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Well, i got to say, I guess the Rolling Stones, because I had a bit more to do with them personally, and I won't forget that, even though they didn't want to be out there on that boat, on that 3AK broadcast after Saturday afternoon, it was a great time to meet them uh, in person. Uh, and they lovely bunch of young blokes, very talented. And, I mean... Who else can you say is still going strong today but the Rolling Stones and you mentioned the Beatles, thanks to Paul and Ringo. 
I mean, that's extraordinary, don't you think? After all those years, nearly 60 years and still going strong. Pete, what would be the most treasured piece of memorabilia from those radio days? Uh, Well, I suppose my RCA ribbon microphone that we used to do a lot of the live shows because in those days, that was the other unique thing about being at the ABC. They had their own orchestra, their own dance band. The Melbourne Symphony Orchestra catered for the classical music at the town hall and uh, at uh, some of the uh, concert halls around town. But on the light entertainment side, they had their own dance band conducted at the time by a guy called Frank Thorne. So many of the programs that I did, including the young teenage show, we did cover versions of the American hits. Because believe it or not, in those days, Paul, hits in America were not simultaneously released with Australia. No way. I think I waited to get to buy Jane Powell singing Oceana Roll from uh, uh, Two Weeks with Love, the MGM musical. I think I waited. It was a hit, big hit in America. I waited, I think it was about seven months to buy that record. Records did not come out simultaneously like they do, we take for granted today. And of course, they don't come out as records at all now, do they? Is there a song or album that you featured as a good guy that you still play at home today? Well, I don't play it all the time, but the, the closest to my heart is a, a, a number called Velvet Waters. Velvet Waters, played by the Megatrons, which is an instrumental and it was the background music I used for the World Hit Survey when I'd go through all the uh, top tunes from around the world. And I used to get that out of a magazine. I've got a fellow called John McDonald who worked at uh, 3XY when Bert had just started out, and John uh, put me onto the New Musical Express. I don't know whether that's a publication anymore in England, but they had uh, World Hit Survey material there. I used to put it on the air with this background theme, Velvet Waters. Pete, was there a moment when someone walked into your studio, radio or television, and you were suddenly starstruck? Well, certainly I mentioned Sean, uh, Sean McAuliffe. I have to say that because I was already in my office at the time, looked up and I knew that this fellow was coming to do a comedy series, a spoof really on the uh, Tonight Shows, which he did very successfully, as I said, for a full season, but I hadn't met him. And all of a sudden, this huge guy, he had to bend down, I think, to get in the door. He's a big fellow, tall fellow, Sean. And I just got the shock of my life because, uh, you know, I'd been following his exploits and here he was in the studio. I got all choked up and I'm doing it now. Do you have any best words of advice that you heard from a program manager? Uh, I suppose, really, back in the days of the ABC when I got on the air and I was doing programs like Lunching and Listening or The Latest and Brightest, (laughs) they didn't want the records. Now when you introduce a record, bang, in it comes. But believe it or not, back in those days, I was hauled into the office because I was doing just that. I was queuing up the record, holding it, spinning on the felt pad, introducing it, letting it go, bang, in it came. And I was told not to do that, please. When you introduce the record, count one, two, and then start the music. True story. The studio superintendent, Charles Rosenthal, those words are still ringing in my ears. And finally, Pete, how does one maintain longevity in the cutthroat world of radio and television? Oh, gee, it can be, a, I think you've got to have the, uh, the broadcasting angel sitting on your shoulder some of the time. It can be a roller coaster ride, Paul. 
And uh, I think the best advice I can say is try and diversify as much as you can and above all, do realise your limitations. I was a supporting player and I was lucky to be able to stay under the radar in that regard. Well, people have almost gone an hour and hardly scratched the surface when it comes to your incredible career. A true pioneer, a true legend, and it's been an absolute honour to feature you on Pilots. Thank you again. And uh, Paul, with your Pilots of the Airwaves, stay radioactive. Now, really, there's only one way to wind this all up. Pete Smith speaking. Pete Smith on Pilots of the Airwaves. Airwaves.